I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the biggest stories in European football. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On this, oh, how the mighty have fallen edition of the pod, the mighty Juve, yes, it is Juve, you know that, (laughs) failed to make it past the group. Let me do this again. The mighty Juve, if you prefer, failed to make it past the group stage of the Champions League. And if that's not a failure, I'd like to see what is. The mighty Barcelona and the not-too-shabby Atletico are also consigned to the dustbins of this year's Champions League before the knockout stage. What is going on with these giants of European football? And is it a case of Robert who? For Bayern, as they ponder life after Lewandowski. Andy, uh, Nicky, uh, feel free to correct me anytime you like, Nicky. Welcome back. Um, 
you will both recommend a European Game of the Week as well for our listeners' enjoyment. But my opening question to you is, what have you seen that we're not necessarily going into detail with in football that we should talk about? What's caught your eye, Nikki? I mean, it's part of me feels like it's it's the most obvious thing, but maybe it isn't to everyone. I just think Giovanni Simeone is the thing that's caught me my in European football this week. He scored two more goals for Napoli in their win over Rangers. Uh, he was told at full time, he didn't even know this, um, and nor did I until he was told at full time, that um, he is the first Argentinian since his father to score four goals in his first four Champions League appearances, which is pretty cool. But yeah, Giovanni Simeone, who, as listeners might remember, because it came up when he scored his first Champions League goal, got a tattoo on his forearm at the age of, as he remembers it, 12 or 13, which parents were not impressed about of the Champions League logo. So it would be ready to kiss it when he scored his first Champions League goal. It's playing his first season of Champions League football and is absolutely taking it by storm. He's having a quietly amazing season in general because he's only played, um, I think it's uh, six games for Napoli, only two of them starts and he scored six times and it got, averaged a goal every 60 minutes. Giovanni Simeone, who's their third choice centre forward, is quietly storming Barnes. I've got Barnes storming in my head. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about centre forwards later on as well. And no doubt Simeone is somebody that will reappear on the uh, podcast at some point. But uh, Andy, what's caught your eye? Um, I'm going to go for an actual move. I know what you're thinking, transfer window shut, but yeah. not for coaches because, of course, we've had Unai Emery leaving BNL and uh, rocking up at Aston Villa this week. Now, I know people have a particular view of Unai Emery from an English perspective, having seen him really take over Arsenal at a very difficult time. I, I think, I wonder, Nicky, how people view him in the fullness of time, given that he was the, the the David Moyes of Arsenal, in a way, you know, following on from a legend. I thought he was a, a little bit unfortunate. Obviously, there are a few things he, he could have done better. And I think when you look at his Arsenal spell, um, in concurrence with his PSG spell, I think it's understandable why people make the conclusion that maybe he struggles to deal with elite players, being someone who goes into the sort of intense detail that maybe elite players are, are, are not really having. Um, but he did pick up Arsenal at a very particular time. He's done an incredible job. He did a, a great job at Valencia, great job at Sevilla, really great job of Villarreal, getting them to win their first major trophy, of course. And it feels like he does have some sort of unfinished Premier League business. It also, to me, feels like Villa will really benefit from that attention to detail that he brings to the table. So maybe this is the moment where, like Slatan at Manchester United, he turns around his, the, the view of him in the uh, English Premier League consuming world. Let's wait and see. Juve, dear, oh dear, oh dear, is all I can say, Nikki. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating seeing the response to this uh, later setback for Juventus. Um, obviously, they lost to Benfica, they're out of the Champions League. And I think that the bit that's caught me off guard this morning, even talking to, to you two um, before we came in, is that this didn't surprise me at all that they lost to Benfica again and, and went out. I, I expected nothing different because Juventus have been poor all season. They've been, I think, by a distance, the third, barely third, best team in that um, Champions League group. I say barely third because they're closer to fourth than they are to second. Um, and so to see them lose emphatically to Benfica, well, 
to me, Benfica are a better team than Juventus right now. It's worth underlining emphatically because, you know, you had that little Samuel Illing-inspired push at, mm. at, at the end, the young Englishman who's just come into the the, the Juventus team and, and, and looked pretty lively. And Benfica having what can only be described as an absolute panic in the last <laughs> 15 minutes. But we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? The, the fact that in Abola, they had, um, one of the Portuguese newspapers, they had a, a little editorial the day after the game and it was entitled, Juventus escaped a historic punishment. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt a little bit like that. It was a four-three thrashing, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it it was it was a four-one into very late on, and as you said, I mean, Samuel Ling Jr. is is worth some reflection on his own because seventeen-year-old Englishman who out of nowhere is is uh, tearing up trees at, at Juventus, and who his story is is one that w- will be fascinating to see to see written. Um, I say tearing up trees. Look, he's he's had two games off the bench. He was sort of bright and impressive in a few minutes against Empoli but to come on to this game and basically immediately inspire two goals for Juventus when they've been dreadful he has some some sort of willingness to run at defenders some dynamism some electricity that they haven't had and yeah he's an interesting player but um I mean did it say something about how static the yes. uh, and and sort of stodgy the rest of Juventus were I think that's almost sort of part of it with him is like how good is he and how is he just being made to look even better by the absolute absence of anything in this Juventus team it's it's almost hard to explain what's wrong with this Juventus team because it feels like it it genuinely feels like when somebody's sick when when a person is sick she's an old lady yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean it does because you know when when you're sick with the best sort of wood in the world no matter what you sort of systems you put in place you can't move as quickly you're not as sort of able to act in an athletic way and this Juventus team looks lethargic looks sluggish all the time all the time no matter which personnel are in the team no matter which formation they line up in it constantly feels like doing anything is an effort right down to making a tackle I mean I I still come back to in this season this um emblematic moment for me being and I, I'm apologies to anyone who's heard me say this somewhere else because I do feel like this one has become like a symbol for me of their season but it was playing against Milan when Brahim Diaz runs past Leonardo Bonucci in the middle of the pitch and you just think why doesn't he foul him you know this is mm. a, a midfield a, this is a midfield sort of situation where you've got an, a, a forward who's clearly building up ahead of steam who's clearly going somewhere and Leonardo Bonucci has been playing football for a long time Anyone who's seen him defend before knows he's not afraid of a bit of cynical defending, not afraid of putting his foot in somewhere. And there's none of that in this Juventus team. There's no willingness to fight. There's no willingness to to even do the dirty things to to stop things from going wrong for you. Well, wasn't really this a symbol of that game, the bit where you see Bonucci mm. on the bench looking in bits and Allegri kind of consoling him? And that he's been such a, you know, for better and worse sort of, undefeated symbol of Juventus for so many years. It, mm-hmm. it says something, doesn't it? It does. And their relationship is this whole fascinating dynamic of its own because, of course, famously they clashed during Allegri's previous tenure and, and Allegri dropped him for a game against Porto and Allegri was proved right because Juventus won and then the next season Bonucci was off to Milan and and to some extent that stop at Milan was was kind of a... A, a splash of cold water in the face of Bonucci of you're not bigger than the club you're not as good as you think you are because mm. you weren't able to make everything magical happen at Milan 
now come back and, and be the sort of soldier that you were for Juventus, be the, the one who was willing to, to sacrifice himself for the team. And that spirit of sacrifice just seems to be missing all through the side. On top of which, there's also the, the, the question of, are Allegri's tactics just outdated? He's always had this slightly odd line of, in the end, a manager doesn't matter. It's just about the players. You'll play, you give the ball to your best player and he'll solve things. But I, I've always found that line in the past hard to square with the fact that in his best seasons at events, he did innovate. He did change his tactics. He did get them to Champions League finals mm-hmm. by doing, by showing fluidity through a season. Almost every one of his best seasons, you see things adapting and changing through the campaign. And this season, well, there's still a lot of season left. Maybe, maybe he can, but it feels desperate at the moment. It feels really, really miserable at Juventus and uh, to go out of the Champions League, not just to go out because going out is one thing. Um, and even though that's bad, it hadn't happened since Conte was, was there in, in a decade ago. I think going out, having lost four games out of five already, including one to Maccabi Haifa, that's a low that Juventus haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah, the the chairman um, blamed the players, uh, seemed to blame the players, saying that they didn't even win one tackle mm. in the match, which might be a little bit harsh, but of course the focus will be on the coach who the chairman has backed for reasons that we'll come to perhaps in a moment. But this... Um, this message on Instagram from James to us. Um, and by the way, you can get hold of us at any time during the week at Football Ramble, at Dotton, at Ibayo, at Andy Brassel, and at Nikki Bandini. But James on Instagram says, How does this get better for Juve, given that they can't afford to sack Allegri? Well, they can't. Well, let's talk about the finances, actually. Let's, let's sort of lay it out. So the last year's accounts for Juventus, they posted us about 250 million euros. The year before that, I think, was about 200 as well. So we are talking about a club that has lost a lot of money. now. A quarter of a billion? Yeah, in a year. <laughs> bonkers. Now, there are mitigating circumstances. The biggest one is, is COVID, which has affected all sorts of clubs. And when you look at Juventus' business model in the years preceding, um, you would, for instance, say... There's some things that are obvious. Commercial revenue has been hit. In-stadium attendances were down. And in Italy, they had a long period of 50 to 70% capacities, which impacted it further. But there's also a less obvious one, which is for a long time, Juventus actually have been doing reasonably smart player trading, selling players on that help cover some of their losses. And with COVID, what happened was the teams that you might sell to no longer had money to spend. So actually selling players to balance the books has become more complicated. So there are mitigating circumstances. Nevertheless, it's, um, and of course, COVID came at the worst possible time for Juventus because they just made a huge financial gamble on Ronaldo. They just made this decision to to gamble on he can bring in extra money and then you you do that at the time when when money is going to get much harder. Having said that, you're still talking about a club that in the summer allowed itself... Angel Di Maria allowed itself, Paul Pogba allowed itself to go out and add another big set of wages to the They're wage bill. They're both injured at the moment as well, so they yeah. can't help. Um, <laughs> Their best player is injured. Yeah, which, and that's an interesting conversation about the injuries because there's definitely been, within Italy, criticisms of Allegri for that, saying there's nine players with muscular injuries right now. Is that to do with how you're training them? What's going on at the coaching level that's letting that happen? And I always feel in those conversations, 
I don't feel qualified to speak on that. Get a physiotherapist to talk about those things because I don't know um, the realities of, of how much the coach's method is, is impacting that and how much is just bad luck. But but certainly it's it's a big part of the picture right now. Look, Juventus, Juventus are missing. Let's talk about that to, to be the other side of the picture. Juventus are missing Paul Pog, but they're missing Angel Di Maria. They're missing Federico Chiesa, who they've been missing for a long time. If you take those players out of any theoretical team, of course, they're going to be weaker. But early this season, um, Allegri was really sort of combative on that point with the press and was saying, try taking five or six players out of Milan or Inter and, and tell me how they do. Well, actually, both Milan and Inter have had those sorts of injury lists this season. Both of them are doing better. Both of them are getting well on course to get through the Champions League group in, in Milan's case. And when Milan played Juventus with, I think, five starters missing, they won. So these excuses start to ring more hollow when your rivals are dealing with the same thing and are handling it better. And I don't know. I, I think it's difficult because I, I think Allegri has so much criticism to rightly bear in this picture. And I also think the owners and the board have their criticism to bear that don't always get it talked about as much because in the end, the decision to sign Ronaldo, well, that's completely That's separate. where this all starts from, it, you, isn't it? To arguably? some extent. It's, but it's think, not just that, is it? Because that, they, yeah. they make this thing, they almost brand this idea of making good free transfer signings, yes. you know, which uh, on one hand you have Pirlo and on the other hand you have Aaron Ramsey. The, the, what meets in the middle is free transfers, aren't oh, free transfers, bloody expensive and they've yes. had a monstrous wage bill for a long time haven't they yeah and i think that the, the sort of the figure that i always come come back to is like a an inflection point for events is when you is when beppe marotta leaves the club because beppe marotta was understood to have been the one voice really there saying no to ronaldo saying that i don't think this is the right decision and beppe marotta make, got things wrong too it was he was um ramsey it was was mm. it was him still there to be fair but I can't shake that feeling that when Merota left, it was like the grown-up left the room and a lot of sort of people were left in charge who were making more and more reckless decisions about these sorts of signings. And yeah, I I, I think it's, it's a complicated picture and I think that it's not just Allegri's fault. But in the end, Allegri is the coach and if they're not, as even Agnelli, the president is saying if they're not making tackles then that is on the coach but the have they still got a lot to play for this season going back to the question um the coach Legri says yeah i've still got Serie A. they're 10 points behind napoli they're going to struggle in that let alone copper italia and so on have they get in right? top four surely i mean is that is that at the best, point is, at best. Is, is, but is that the point where they this uh, they have to maybe bite the bullet and, and, and fire him if it doesn't look like they're going to make top four so in general, since Agnelli has been at the helm of this club, they just have not changed managers mm. mid-season. Of course, they can point to a disastrous case with Del Neri when he was first there. They stuck through it, went seventh, accepted it, moved on afterwards. Um, I don't think Agnelli wants to make a change unless he's really, really, really forced. And Allegri is, I haven't mentioned this bit yet, the joint highest paid manager in Serie A. He's got three more years in his contract. It's not easy to get rid of him. but. You're right. As I've mentioned, the club lost 250 million euros and the fact of not getting through the Champions League group stage is already a big dent to their finances this year. 
So if they're not going to qualify for the next one, that could be a point where the pressure really starts to mount. Having said that, you can you can go to Allegri's own words on this one. Allegri said from the beginning there's going to be two seasons this season. There's a season before the World Cup and there's a season after the World Cup. And I think there's some truth in that. So stopping point number one will be what does this situation look like when we get to the World Cup? And that's not so far away now. Okay, maybe you can't teach your granny to suck eggs or any <laughs> other old lady, by the way. But Benfica was t- cheated them to something of a masterclass from a team that have been winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the faults of Juventus and we should talk about the faults of Juventus, but Benfica have just been outstanding in this Champions mm. League campaign. They've been really good. You think they've drawn twice with PSG and when... You know, it's easy to pick holes in, in, in where Juventus are and clearly they're well short of expectation. But, you know, Benfica have not stolen either of these games. They beat them well twice in Turin and then at the Stadio de Luz to seal qualification this week. The second successive season, they've they've got into the last 16 of the Champions League, which is a bit of a break from recent tradition for them. But they've just been so much better under Roger Schmidt this season. You, you don't just look at the... The new players who've come in, and obviously Enzo Fernandez, who David Cartledge has talked up endlessly, has, has, has been outstanding. But I, I think you look at it's just getting Schmidt is getting more out of the players that are already there. You look at uh, Joao Mario, who's, who's been brilliant in, in, in both of these games and, and for all of this season. He's, he's going to be good for Portugal, I think, in the World Cup. And uh, Rafa, of course, who scored uh, a couple in, in, in this game. And He's a really interesting player, I, I, I think, because there's, there's a lot of discussion about him in Portugal at the moment. Um, 29 years old now, and he quit the Portuguese national team going back a couple of months. Um, he said for personal reasons, the wide presumption is that he, he doesn't want to go and sit on the bench and spend his holidays sitting on the bench. Um, now, Paulo Futre, no less, has come out after this game against Juventus and said, look, whatever problem there is between... Rafa and Fernando Santos, it needs to be put to one side for Portugal. They have to pick him. And I can understand why he would say that because he's an exciting player. He's a goal scorer. He's a playmaker with pace. And, you know, Kevin De Bruyne has obviously got a better range of passing than anyone else, but has, has proved that, you know, a playmaker with pace is a really formidable weapon. I, I just wonder with Rafa, who, you know, was involved when uh, they won the Euros. He was, he was in the squad and he's been in various Portugal squads without really breaking through. He's someone who he talked about after the Juventus game. He's, he's a guy who's he's discreet. He, he doesn't really like to talk about um, his, his life and his how he's feeling and all that sort of stuff outside the, the four walls of the family home, as, as, as he put it. Um Ricardo Quaresma said it, it is it is rubbish when you know you're you're smashing it for your club and you you go and sit on the bench for your for your country. So I, I don't know what Portugal could do really to to bring him back. Also, I have the feeling with the way he's playing at the moment, since he's made that decision, this is weight off his shoulders. And he's just become an even better player since that happened. So Benfica are feeling the benefit. Yeah, will Cristiano Ronaldo have to sit on the bench? Um, no. Just checking. <laughs> As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ramble. Arguably, today has been a story of two managers who have been knocked out of the Champions League at the group stages and are unsackable. So, let's turn to Atletico um, over the other side uh, in Spain. In fact, should we start off by just talking about the last-minute uh, or post-final whistle yes. action in this amazing game um, where Atletico uh, got knocked out um Against, you know, good opposition, I suppose. But they got knocked out uh, against Leverkusen, who always looked like they were going to win this game in any case. But they got knocked out on a draw. Yeah, so they the, the final whistle goes, Yeah. Uh, to recap. Um, it's an Atletico corner. Jano Black is up. They're chasing the winner that will keep them in the Champions League and put them in the same position that they were mm. match day six last season. And can I just Go, say going to going to Porto and having to win? Just very quickly, if you watch the highlights of this, so final whistle goes. Diego Simeone goes off towards the tunnel, very unhappy. Yeah. You know? Um, but then he comes back. He rushes back. There's yeah, hope. because there's a, there's a VAR check uh, about a potential handball, which turns out to be a handball. So after the game has initially finished. We go back and Yannick Carrasco has got the opportunity to win the game from the penalty spot. Um, now, <laughs> I, I was I was at Spurs last night working 
And I saw all the games had finished apart from the Atletico game. And then it popped up on on the phone text that they've got a penalty. So I'm right, okay, get get the, the, the video straight on. And Carrasco's lining up the penalty. He goes to step up for the penalty. And, you know, look in Carrasco's eyes. Look in the goalkeeper, Lucas Rodetsky's eyes. And then go back to the wide shot. He's just stepping up. He's just about to kick it. And those three little dots appear on my phone <laughs> to say, you're buffering. Yeah. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> Who says the internet hasn't got a sense of humour? Okay. Anyway, tell you what happened? What, what, <laughs> <laughs> when he finally does kick it, obviously, Rodetsky saves it. Saul follows up, his header hits the crossbar. Then Reynildo follows up. His shot looks like it's going in. It hits Carrasco and goes over the top. And then the game is over. Mm. And Atletico are out. And it is the biggest failure of the Diego Simeone era, is what they're saying in the in the Spanish press. There has been a feeling this season, as we've talked about before on OTC, that um Atletico are a kind of drifting. And, you know, there's no real plan. There's a lot of talent, but, you know, what are they actually trying to do? It's not just that the football's not good. The defending's not good. The results are, are, are not good. I think in previous times, a game that Atletico wanted to win like this, we would see this as being a sort of one nil ball fest, wouldn't mm. we? That never looked likely to me. The two goals that Leverkusen scored in the first half, and it wasn't much improved Atletico after half time, two goals that Leverkusen scored in the first half, a Simeone team should not be letting those goals in. And it feels as if there's this sort of dislocation between him and the players. He'd far rather have Real Madrid's players than he would Atletico's. And and that's not just because Atletico, uh, Real Madrid's players are winning players. It's just they're more suited to him. They're a little bit more mm. circumspect. So there's this like ideological gap between the coach and the players. Now we talk about expensive coaches to sack. Simeone's the most not only most cultural, culturally important coach in Atletico's history, even more so than Luis Aragonés, he's the highest paid coach in the world. It's so that, that they they are in a, a really difficult position. But you know, it, it does get to that point where you think, you know, something has has, has got to change. It, I think there are quite quite a lot of parallels with Juventus. You know, they're creaking under big losses huge wage bill. All this is sort of, as we've said again earlier this season on the pod, sort of covered up by what's happening at Barcelona. And of course, ruinous for Barcelona going out of the Champions League with their exit confirmed before they even got on the pitch against Bayern yesterday. Um, Their players watched into batter Pilsen together (laughs) and then went out and were humiliated by Bayern again as is is ritual for them. And, And so... I think, though, you, you look at the, the context of this particular Champions League failure. They're, they're talking about why it's so bad for Atletico. And we can talk about the good teams that are going to go into the Europa League, like Barcelona, like Atletico, like maybe Juventus, maybe with Pogba and Chiesa by the time that that, mm. that comes about as well. The, the opposition they went out against, against this time, of course, we talked about Club Brugge and their young team with a little sprinkling of experience and what good job they've done. There is no way that Atletico should not be getting out of a group that includes Porto, who are now through, and Club Brugge and, and, and Leverkusen. It just shouldn't be happening. I I was just thinking, like, during that that ending with Atletico, um, they, it starts to feel like that sort of 
end of a horror movie with the villain that won't quite die. And I'm not trying to betray Atletico as, as Europe's... It's a good comparison. As Europe's it's villain. an excellent comparison. But that's sort of like, you know, you yeah. think they're gone and then they hang on, the game isn't over and then there's a penalty and then they miss it, but they still isn't over and then there's yeah. another thing. It's very Michael Myers, and, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. then you play it off like earlier in the group as well when they had that game against Porto that went on and on, like it was never yeah. over. And I, I think there's something sort of in that... Um, actually that isn't totally coincidental because that's that's who Diego Simeone is. That's what he mm. brings to you. That's that sort of character of like, we're never done until they make us be done. And in some degree, I suppose you could say, well, they did keep going. They did keep trying. But I, I wonder if moments like this, because I've been thinking about this a lot with Allegri and, and the aura that he had last time he was at Juventus and the aura he has now, how he's sort of treated and viewed. And I was wondering if you think, Andy, if like Diego Simeone's invincibility is starting to break in some way, if there's some part of that. I, I wonder if that's the case. Going back briefly to um, the, the, the the horror movie where the, where, the, where the villain won't die. It was it was funny, actually. There was uh, Talking of people watching the end of that, there was a great shot in, in, in Portugal. Um, someone had filmed the Porto players on the plane coming back from Bruges <laughs> and, and they're, they're watching it and they go absolutely mad. Even Pinto da Costa, who's, you know, not getting any younger, the president, uh-huh. he's doing a little dance in the corner and stuff. It's, it's absolutely amazing. So I think they were having flashbacks, but yeah, we don't really want to have to get anything out of this final <laughs> game next week, a bit of, a bit of deja vu. But, but yeah, I, I think that magic is starting to come away from Simeone. I think the row between him and Joao Felix is, is is really corrosive to to, to him. You know, there, there's no one like doubting his his reputation and what he means in terms of Atletico's history. But it feels more and more like that, like history, and it feels like they're burning their future. So financially, in terms of failing to guard Joao Felix as as, a, as an asset, and you know, there's been talk about you know maybe PSG being interested in him in the the winter window. They will not be paying. Uh, they will not be paying Atletico what they paid for for for, for him, and, and that is a huge problem. Then you look at not getting to the the next stage of the the Champions League. They also are in a position where they have players who they would have sold but weren't able to sell. So Saul and Morata, Morata's done very well for them this season. Of course, have have, have come back. There are no easy answers. Very much like Juventus. Just continuing the. Nightmare on Elm Street analogy. I think we need to conclude this little bit with, uh, in the famous words of Clint Eastwood in General Saint, yeah, I had to take you down the reggae street. <laughs> uh, we come again, it's we. We come again, go tell your friend, another one bites the dust. Because Barcelona as well, we haven't really touched on them. They bit the dust in the uh, group stages of the Champions League as well. That's not unusual nowadays because mm. they did it last season as well. Yeah, I suppose I, I, I keep thinking about what Andy was saying about um, Xavi was brought them all in to watch the Inter game beforehand. And I saw Federico Di Marco, uh, the Inter player, was sort of enjoying that when that was explained to him in his post-game interview. And he said, oh, they probably should have gone home at half time then. And, <laughs> you know, fair enough because Inter, I mean, it's been not talk about Inter really but like yeah they actually took care of business which they haven't always done in Europe um, but it must be a psychologically very strange place to be as a player 
Barcelona, for all that hasn't been right with their approach and their and their business model, I suppose, in the last 12 months, they actually have energised the fan base and brought fans back to the stadium. And this was a full Camp Nou. This was mm. a full stadium of people who've just been told this game doesn't matter. I can't imagine how that is as a player to go out there because, of course, you still want to acquit yourself well against Bayern Munich, but your head can't be in the right place at that moment. And, of course, you're thinking, oh, my God, of all the teams you could yeah. be playing at this moment, Bayern. I mean, Sid Lowe tweeted a, a, a stat this morning. The last 15 goals in games between Barcelona and Bayern Munich all scored by Bayern. I mean, that, that, that is, that is just Does that remarkable. surprise you? It doesn't really surprise me. Well, 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 not if you think about it and you think about all those games, but I think it's, it's a really good point that Nicky makes, that full stadium. That is the difference because, as you said, Dotton, they've been here before mm. at this time last year. The difference was, this time last year, they had a much worse team. Xavi's still getting to grips with it all and there's a third of the fans in the stadium that there mm. are now. You know, they've pushed the boat out predicated on them getting to the back end of the, the, the Champions League, the Piper is going to have to be paid at some point. And that's a huge, huge issue for them. Meanwhile, though, they're in the Europa League. Um, Simon tweets us and says, assuming that it does end this way, how seriously do you think Juve, Atleti and Barcelona will take the Europa League? Well, Juventus should, Nicky, because it might be the best chance of a Champions League place. <laughs> I mean, that's brutal, but true. They might need to um, mm. to, to push there to, to qualify. Look, I don't... We're getting ahead of ourselves if we say Juventus aren't going to finish in the top four. There's a lot of season left and they have got players coming back. Um, but it certainly is a path back into that competition. I think, actually, for all of these teams, the conversation that we keep having about how much money they've lost is relevant. The Europa League will not make you as much as the Champions League would, but if you go all the way to the final and you get full stadiums in some of those games, it helps. Like mm. it, it covers some of what you've lost. And I think for clubs like Barcelona and Juventus, who are so heavily over leveraged right now, it feels like you really kind of have to go for everything because you need to try to make up what you're losing. Let's move on and talk, um, well, about one sector of the great leagues in Europe that we haven't touched on yet, doing very well, um, or not, as the case may be. Bayern Munich, representing the Bundesliga, have been representing without, well, what we've become used to as their number nine, the centre-forward Robert Lewandowski. Do you now... fancy uh, reframing that as the Europa League's Robert Lewandowski? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, it, sounds, it sounds weird, doesn't it? Don't, don't you think? No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> for Barcelona. How have they got into a situation where Robert Lewandowski's playing in the Europa League? I know, I know. Well, we wondered, how did Bayern Munich let Robert Lewandowski go? He was such a central part of their attack. You knew that he was on the pitch, they were going to get goals. And you wondered how they would manage without him, whether they had to replace him with another centre-forward or otherwise. They haven't done that, but it seems like they don't need to do that. Well, th they, they haven't done that, but more, more latterly they have, I, I, I think is the point. Why because, default? Yeah, if you look at, like, you know, the way they started the season, they started with this kind of amorphous 4-4-2 where you get, say, Gnabry and Manet playing up front. Then by the time they're playing Barcelona in the Champions League, they're playing in more of an orthodox, orthodox three up top. And, um, you know, you have plenty of Gnabry as, as centre-forward, bit of Thomas Muller. 
And, you know, there's a lot of chat, um, we've, we've touched on it here, about do they need to directly place Robert, replace Robert Lewandowski? There is no way, really, of directly replacing Robert Lewandowski, but do they need that, you know, in inverted commas, proper number nine? Now, Julian Nagelsmann has always been at the point of view that, you know, if I have to do without a traditional number nine, that's fine. You know, that suits that's what his, Barcelona used suits to his, say. Yeah, but that suits his football more, you, you, you would say. But you know what? Since Eric Maxim Chupamoting, who has been a figure of fun, particularly for English fans, you know, because he was at Stoke City, then all of a sudden there he is in the squad at PSG and Bayern winning trophies. Um, th- th- since he's returned to the team and he's played, what, four, five successive games now? Um, and he's scored in all but one of them. It's, it's not just the goals, though. He's added another dimension to Bayern. It all looks a bit more familiar now. And he has played really well. Um, it's always I, been I mean, a good player, though. It, exa- exactly, Dotton. That's that's often overlooked that he has always been a good player. Like he's talked about as if he's some scrub, which is ridiculous because Tuchel brought him in for a reason. He knew him from Mainz. Uh, he knew he would be able to do a good squad job, and he's never let either PSG or Bayern down, which is why both of these huge clubs have have, have kept him on for a reasonable amount of time. But what he offers in terms of um, holding the ball up in terms of bringing those other guys into play. And I think it works particularly well when you've got two wide players like Bayern have. I, I think there, there, there are two elements to it. Firstly, does this mean that he will play for the rest of the season? Well, we, we can't know. I think at the moment, it looks like he'll play quite a lot of football. Secondly, what does it mean in terms of what Bayern do going forward? Because they've been intermittently linked with Harry Kane, which whether we think this is a genuine possibility or not the chat is going to continue because he's only got a year left on his Tottenham contract so until he gets the ink on the paper on the next one I think it suits Bayern to look like they're doing something in terms of big signing and it suits Harry Kane's camp because it looks like a a top ranked destination and you know it looks like Tottenham have got to pull their finger out and do something in terms of sporting ambition in terms of money to get him to to sign again I'm still Still not completely convinced it's feasible. I'm also not completely convinced it's desirable because if you look at, you know, we talk a lot about proper number nines, don't we? Like, for example, like Manchester City went there, even Manchester City and Guardiola went there, as you were saying, Don, and got themselves Erling Haaland. Now, Erling Haaland is a better fit for Manchester City than Harry Kane would have been because if Harry, we know Harry Kane likes the drop, does he eat De Bruyne's space? If he's playing in that team, possibly, possibly. I, I, you no, know, if you buy a centre forward because you need a centre forward, then he needs to be at the centre forward. Yeah, you know? yeah, but like a, a lot of people would have argued until very recently that that's what he should have been doing for England and Tottenham. But but that's not what he does. That's not the player he's developed into. But you into. don't bring him in just to be a centre forward, do you? Tottenham didn't bring him in just to be a centre forward. England don't bring him in just for that. They bring him in for all the, his other attributes. No, no but that, that's that's what that's what say Manchester City needed. Yeah. Absolutely a definite centre forward who stays there in the penalty, penalty box. And if Bayern are replacing Lewandowski, Nicky, presumably that's what they want as well. Well, not necessarily though, because it, dep- it all depends on, on your Does it work with the wingers? vision and, and how they do it. And I'm, yeah, I, I'm sorry to bring the conversation back to Napoli because I, I feel like they're the club I want to talk about all the time at the moment. They're just so much fun to watch. But yeah, look, Simeone playing in some Champions League games is an interesting contrast because Actually, while Victor Osman was injured, the, the main sort of centre forward that um, Spalletti went with was Giacomo Raspadori, certainly mm. in the league. 
and Raspadori and Osimhen could not be much more different as as centre forwards. Raspadori is a, a small, um, rapid but sort of naturally drifting wide player. He's a winger, really. He's a winger mm. who was put in at centre forward, um, who can play centre forward and, and did score goals there, but who whose natural inclination is to vacate the middle of the pitch. And what you've seen at Napoli now is that you actually have three distinct options in Osimhen and Simeone and Raspadori in, in how you occupy the pitch. If you've got Raspadori there, you get this very sort of different shape of how the team plays without changing its formation where there isn't someone in the middle. There's some because he's always clearing the space and that's allowing Farad Skelly on the wing or Lozano or someone else to arrow in from the flanks and, and, and occupy there. With Simeone, as happened in the Champions League against Rangers, quite often he is in the middle attacking the box winning headers in a way that you don't necessarily sort of think just to look at him but he's, he's very sort of much a, a classic number nine when he wants to be yeah we're seeing that combination aren't we already between Mario Rui and Simeone all yeah. the time aren't we and Mario Rui is another one who's low-key had a really great season so far and isn't this to some extent what we've sort of talked about forever like what managers talk about having a plan b having something different mm. and yeah have have some variety in your options i i would expect that bayern would like to have the option of a of a classic number nine um but that doesn't mean you have to have a classic number nine you can yeah reimagine how you play football i mean it, it is interesting isn't it like we, we we talk a lot about how guardiola has um influenced football so much and mm. how um, you know the way that even like Sunday teams and kids teams have have changed in, in in the way they play. But actually, we are getting to this point where it feels like you have to have a number nine, not to play all the time, like you said, but definitely as an option. You know, you look at Milan with Giroud and how important he's been in the, the last year. You even look at the player that Benzema has turned into for Real Madrid, a proper number nine, which has basically shifted Giroud from the French team. The fact mm. that you know, as we've said before, like that Benzema can do the Giroud things, you know, he can win headers and he's muscly and he can hold it up and he can do the things that made Benzema so um, unique beforehand. You know, that's what's got him to to, to Ballon d'Or level. So where are we then definitively on uh, to go for number nine or not, particularly in the Champions League? I, I think it's just, I, th- I, I don't know, I, I really sort of believe in the horses for courses idea and I think that even when we talk about number nines, that can oversimplify it because to, to bring in another Italian club, of course, Inter went out and signed a very sort of, a very number nine, number nine in the summer. They brought back Romelu Lukaku, who mm. I think we think of as a very classic interpretation of that role. And he's been injured. He did come back um, in, in the win over Pilsen this week. And scored. Um, and scored, indeed. Mm. Um, and while he's been away, you've had the sort of alternating of different options where often it's been Lautaro leading the line who in my opinion, is is a nine and a half. I think he's sort of somewhere between a nine and a ten. And then you have Edin Dzeko, who is a number nine, but a very different kind of number nine to Lukaku. You know, Dzeko is the the back to goal, bringing others into play, target man. Old school. Yeah, whereas Lukaku wants to, to turn and face the goal. He wants mm. to be running at goal. So even within number nines, we have different categories. And I think that, I don't know, I, I guess I always think the teams with the most options are the teams that look strongest. To be or not to be? That That's is a question. question. Yeah. <laughs> well, having said that, it remains for you both to offer us a game of the week to experience this week. I know you've got options now, both of you. Nikki, do you want to go first? 
you know, I, I feel a bit like this is the week where you can probably call me out and say I'm being too parochial and stinky this week because <laughs> there isn't in Serie A this weekend one game that screams at me. But the one that I came to was uh, Lazio against Salernitana, mostly just because I feel like, well, we're here all talking about the Champions League teams. Lazio are playing good football this season on the quiet that hasn't necessarily been appreciated that much. They've got... They've got a great manager. Well, exactly. I was going to get to that. So they, they've only lost one game this season, which was to Napoli. But they've got seven wins, three draws, and that one loss. And the man in charge, Maurizio Sarri, really feels like he's starting to um, to recreate something, to have a, a new Sarri ball that's happening for him. It's not the same as, as the Napoli Sarri ball. It's not as much of the the quick triangles it's maybe something close to what we saw earlier in his career where you start with the defensive solidity that they've conceded only five goals and said he had a season but he's he's getting he's really getting a tune out of this team at a time when Chido Immobile is injured as well they still um they still are, are finding goals finding finding results Zakanyi is really developing into a really fun player to watch on the flank and you know uh Sari himself is always is always an entertainment I was thinking Sarivore, which of course is the anglicization of Sarismo, is this idea that's accompanied him all through his career. And he was asked after the last game about Sarismo. And he was like, you know, I, I don't know what Sarismo is supposed to be. If you ask my wife, it's a stubborn headed man who can be a dickhead sometimes. So <laughs> I think Maurizio Sari on his own, when he's, when he's in his groove, which he is right now, is fun to watch. Nothing lost in translation. I can tell you, by the way, <laughs> that whilst you were away, there were some odd choices, um, culinary choices <laughs> from Italy to go with games that previous incumbents... Which you might have partaken in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for dragging me into it. My pleasure. What should we eat? Well, I've just made it all about Sari. So what I have in my head, of course, if it's Sari, you'd have a cigarette, which I'm not going to recommend. I don't smoke. Um, but he did always, um, famously at... Uh, at all of his clubs, he's always had his, his little assistant, his friend who comes out and brings him a, a, an espresso in the middle of training. So have a good coffee. Mm. And the other thing, when he was living in London at Chelsea, he used to get his mozzarella imported directly. So just get some oh, mozzarella right. and some coffee and have a good time. And, and, and Andy, <laughs> you're going to have to follow the culinary expertise yes. of Nicky in a moment. But tell me about the match you'd recommend. For um, I'm going to go for Athletic Bilbao against Villarreal on uh, Sunday okay. afternoon. Of course, um, Athletic have been in terrific form uh, for the majority of this season. Really, really great to watch. I think they're one of the must-watch teams in Europe at the moment with the, the Williams brothers really, really smashing it. And then Villarreal have, have got a new coach, of course. They've they've moved on from uh, Unai Emery and Kike Setien has come in. Really interested to see how he does after previous spells of of interest at least uh, uh, Betis and, and Barcelona good to see him um, back in the mix um, yeah, he's, he's, he's made a huge dent in La Liga over the years so I'm interested to see how he picks up the bat and they're, they're quite interesting to watch as well you know of course been playing away from home this year while their um, stadium's done up they're, pl they're playing at Levante but um, no worries about that because they'll be going to the cathedral of uh, Sam Mamis. So enjoy that with bit Fish of, and chips. Bit of, <laughs> well, no, look, I, I know, I know there's Spain. the English, I know there's the English <laughs> connection with with athletic, but still, uh, yeah, I think there'll be a seafood element to it. I, I, I think we'll go for something uh, typically ba Basque, a bit of uh, black squid ink pasta, I would say, with chips. <laughs> The 
Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.